The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From Galatians chapter 3, beginning of verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's written in Deuteronomy. The one who does them shall live by them. Cursed is the one who does not. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Let's pray. Father, we have before us in this text your word. And every little piece of your word is your word to us. Every jot, every tittle, every mark in it is your communication to us. But there are some places that rise up and sing of marvelous things that challenge us in in difficult ways that give hope to us in unexpected manner. Different portions of your word say different things to us. And this morning, Lord, we have before us a particular piece that gives us hope. It shows us, it it deals with, it, it confronts on the issue of curse and law, and disobedience. And then it traces its way through to something marvelous. Would you give us eyes to see it today? Would you give us an ability to grasp it, to see the whole picture? Not only to run just to the end and see just that, but to see the whole picture. Help me to express it accurately and well. Remove the confusion from me. As Kurt prayed, Lord, remove the confusion from my mind and from my lips. And I pray the same for my friends sitting here. Remove the confusion and the distraction from their minds. That they would see what you're saying in your word. So Holy Spirit, what I'm asking is that you would come and that you would move through the Word that You inspired and that You would breathe life into it again today so as to produce change for the glory of God and for the good of this people, many of whom are Your children, some of whom are not. I don't know who's who. You do, so speak appropriately. Speak accordingly. Lift up those who are your people and are in relationship with you. Call in those who are your own but have not yet closed with you by faith. Convict. 
stir hope and produce life. Would you do that this morning, Lord, as we turn to your word? Would you open it for us? And give us eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. I pray this in Christ's name, this Jesus who is the end of the law, who has redeemed us out from underneath of the curse of the law, who is our hope and our joy. In his name I pray. Amen. Our progress through the book of Deuteronomy has brought us to chapter 21 in the section of the book that is heavily focused on particular civil laws for this new budding country of Israel that's coming into existence. Moses is speaking to the people of God at the very end of their 40 years of wandering. God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. He had physically delivered them out of bondage there with great power and with a promise. He had brought them out so as to bring them in to something, to bring them into the fulfillment of a centuries-old promise, first made to Abraham, a promise to make a people from him. But more than that, a promise that God himself would dwell among that people, in a place where they would experience rest and blessing and abundance and peace and contentment. In other words, life. He'd promised that. He was executing it now. And it's all physically speaking. He's, he's doing all of these things bit by bit. He's physically bringing them out of bondage, physically carrying through them through a wilderness, physically bringing them into a land. He's going to physically dwell there in this land, in a city, in a building, in a room. Physically. The land of Canaan, Jerusalem, the temple. This section of Deuteronomy has been revealing some of the civil laws that are going to govern that physical country, that, that civil entity. So we saw in chapter 19, it touched on the concept of refuge and what to do in the case that human blood was shed in this physical location where God, the Holy One, physically dwells. That's a problem for the God of life to be around death. So, so what are you to do about that? You have to do something, as, as chapter 19, verse 10 pointed out, lest innocent blood be shed in the land that the Lord is giving you as an inheritance and guilt abide here. You've got to do something. And so it talked about refuge back in chapter 19. And then in chapter 20, last week we saw his instruction about warfare, how they would go about fighting. When it came about that war arose, what would they do? How would they raise an army? How would they carry out military campaigns? And we saw there that God himself was going to fight for his people as they fought fearlessly, trusting in him. They were to cleanse this land and wipe out from it all abomination and then create a buffer zone around it to protect it and keep it clean, this place of life and rest. And both of those chapters have connections to, have things in common with our chapter for today, chapter 21. We're going to continue to unpack the idea of the importance of land and life in it. A clean, pure place of rest. There are connections with those two chapters to this morning. And as I read it here in a moment, I'm sure there are going to be some things here that will give some of us pause. So let me say at the outset, let me encourage you at the outset here, 
Let the whole thing speak. Let the whole chapter and everything in it that gets unpacked and brought out, let the whole thing speak. And I encourage you, listen to it in an appropriate manner. As creatures hearing a word from God the Creator. He has said what He has said with reason. And I think that if we let the whole thing speak, listening to it humbly, from the proper perspective, what we're going to find in the end, we will see, I'm convinced, a good and wise God, gracious in His dealing with His people. Let me read the text then, Deuteronomy chapter 21, and then I'm going to pass back through it. And because there's so much in it, I'm going to spend a little bit longer time than usual addressing some of the details and therefore a little bit shorter time than usual on a couple of observations at the end. Let me read Deuteronomy, all of chapter 21. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked, and that is not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley." Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord, and by their word every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify, Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, so that their blood guilt be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her home to your house, you shall shave her head and pare her nails, and you shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved who is the firstborn. He shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. 
If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Deuteronomy 21. The text is bracketed by two phrases that mark this whole chapter as a single related unit. And also at the same time tell us what the main idea is. The unifying theme that we're dealing with in chapter 21 can be summed up in, in two words, life and land. We're going to look at that in a little more detail. Life, or the taking of life, or the loss of life, or the giving of life. Life and land. In verse 8, Moses brings up the subject of the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of the people of Israel. When, as verse 1 puts it, they found a dead body somewhere out in the countryside. They don't know who did it, but there's a, there's a body there. And just like in chapter 19, there's guilt from this innocent blood that now rests on this place. It's a contamination of the land. Numbers 35 has a related passage, and it uses a couple of words. Let me read just a couple of verses from Numbers 35, beginning in verse 33. And listen to how it describes this type of situation. It says there, You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people Israel. So what's going on here is that they find a body and they realize that blood has been shed in the land. In other words, it has been polluted. It has been defiled. There is an inherent contradiction between the God who dwells there and is a God of life and murder, death, bloodshed. So they have to deal with it. They have to, as it says, purge this from their midst in verse 9. And those two concepts, death defiling the land and the purging of evil from the land, those two concepts are what start the chapter and they appear again at the end of the chapter in verses 21 and 23. Those are the brackets. You need to purge the evil from the midst of Israel by death in 21. In 23, the command to not defile the land that the Lord is giving them as an inheritance. The text circles back on itself and it indicates for us what the main theme is. Innocent bloodshed, life lost in the land and the need to, to cleanse it. The rest of the details, all then in one way or another, connect to that main theme. So if you're thinking about this, the subject is which commandment? 
The sixth, you shall not kill. That's the subject working all through this chapter. Or expressed oppositely. You'll recall from when we talked about the moral law back in chapter 5. That's where the Ten Commandments are found in Deuteronomy 5. All the commandments are expressed in one way, and they also imply an equal expression in the opposite way. So thou shall not kill is thou shall bless and give life and nurture and nourish life. They're the same, just stated oppositely. What we're dealing with here this morning is you shall not kill, you shall not take life in land, but instead shall give it and bless and nourish and encourage. Everything fits under that. That's the big picture. Now, as we look through each section of the chapter, we realize that we're dealing with case law here. In the case that such and such arises, what do you do? Just like last chapter with the warfare, he's not telling the people that they should do such and such. He's saying, this is going to arise. You're going to find yourself living in a country where this happens. What do you do? So, verses 1 to 9, what do you do when you find a body in the wilderness? It's going to happen at some point, and you have to do something about it because that bloodshed defiles the land. You can't just leave it as kind of an open case down at police headquarters. It has to be looked into, and if you can't find who did it, it has to be resolved because it has to be cleansed away. So what do you do? And he tells them how to do it. You gather all the different leaders. You can read about all the details there. But every leadership office, elders and judges and priests who represent God, they all gather together. And on an untouched piece of land, with an untouched heifer, they offer up an atoning death and pray, God, we don't know who did it. Will you please accept this one in its place? For the cleansing of, verse 8 twice says, for the cleansing of Israel. One body in one particular place contaminates all of the country. All of the country must be cleansed. And so their prayer is, God, will you accept this as cleansing, to purge away the guilt? Verses 10 to 15, then, address the marrying of a woman captured in warfare. Like chapter 20, verse 14 in Visions. Now, in, in the Western world today, obviously, we most of the time select who we marry. But for a variety of reasons, that's not how it worked back then, and even in some cultures still today. Dads arranged marriages. Dads oversaw this sort of thing. Dads were responsible for their daughters until they were of marrying age, and they were sort of like their, their guardians and protectors. And so they arranged a marriage to make sure that it was a good one. They defended their daughters in, in their dignity. But in this case, verses 10 to 14, Laachi's captured in warfare. That's not possible. Her dad's not around. She's completely at the mercy of her Israelite captor, who has physical power over her, can do anything with her that he wants to. And so God steps in and takes her part. And in a couple of very clear ways that would have been particularly clear in their culture, maybe not so much to us today, in a couple of clear ways, God defends her human dignity. He protects her life. She's allowed a period of mourning, a full month. 
And importantly, her status is changed. When she changes hair and nails and clothes, she's transformed from, pick a nationality here, she's transformed from Hittite captor to wife of Israelite, which is a significant change. She had been his slave. We don't have time to go into slavery back then. But slavery existed and it usually happened as a result of warfare. And it's different than what maybe it fixes in our minds from American slavery. So don't equate the two. Americans have, we have a history of slavery. It's not the same as this. But there was slavery that existed back then. And there was clear financial advantage to owning slaves. So this guy would have had some financial advantage to keep her as a slave. But if he decides to marry her, he changes her status and he can never change it back. Her father would have been her defender on that point. He's not around, so God takes her part. If you marry her, you cannot then, when you don't, don't like her anymore, flip her back to a slave when you need the money. She's your wife. Her status has been changed. Verses 15 to 17 then continue the concept of family relations and life-giving in families with a man who has two wives, one loved, one unloved. Now, there are a couple situations in which he could have found himself with two wives. Chapter 25 talks about one of them, and we'll address that more when we get there. But suffice it to say that back in that day, they could have found themselves with two wives. And what do you do when a guy loves one of them and doesn't love the other one? And he doesn't want to give his inheritance to the kids that he doesn't like. God steps in as a protector of them. There's an important context here. Back in the the time in which this is written, back in the time in which there is a grand connection between God dwelling in a place and God's blessing being in that place, for people to experience that blessing, they need a piece of that place. This is how the Old Covenant works. His land is where he is and what he blesses. And they need a piece of that land to experience the blessing in the life of God. Follow that concept through. That's why the inheritance rules are so important. He is in a place. And there are allowances made for Levites and widows and orphans who don't have a little piece of that place. But if you're not one of them, you need a piece of the place. And God says that this guy cannot, just because he doesn't like this person, cut him out. Separate them. Deny them an inheritance. Play favorites. God again steps in to defend and to provide for the life of all of these people. You have to follow the inheritance laws and give land to them. Give them a place. And the concept of inheritance laws is what's going on in verses 18 to 21 also with the stubborn and rebellious son. This is probably the toughest one of the section for us. But a couple of things maybe set a little of context here. This is not a little boy who refuses to eat his vegetables. It's not child abuse. It's not parents who are frustrated that they can't get their kid to mind and so they kill him. 
He is described, the son, as stubborn and rebellious, repeatedly described as disobedient, a glutton, and a drunkard. Almost certainly he is of age. Little boys are not gluttons and drunkards. He is an older son and has been over his life disobedient. Breaking the fifth commandment. And you can imagine for parents to know, I have to bring this out. And I have to take this child of mine, this son, to court and prove this evilness in him. And it will result in his death. You can imagine that that has to be a serious situation. It has to be proven in court. But there's a further clue that this isn't just a a family discord issue. That when the sentence is executed, it is done by all of the people in the community. This is a threat to the whole people. Remember how verse 8, one dead body defiles all of Israel? Here's one evil, disobedient son who endangers the whole community because of the inheritance laws. Perhaps picture it like this. If you live in a condo unit, and the guy in 2C is running a meth lab in his unit. That's a problem for him, and it's a problem for everybody. Not just that it tears down your property values, but that it actually contaminates the facility. So you have to do something about that to get this person out and to wipe that whole place clean if it's even possible. That's what's going on here. This son will receive an inheritance. And he will become an established cancer in the midst of the people. An abomination in God's eyes. And they have tried over time to change and discipline him. And it has not worked. In God's verdict, this is evil. And it must be purged from their midst. Very end of verse 21. Now, we've talked about that phrase a number of times, purge the evil from your midst. It appears twice in this chapter, a number of times in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm not going to belabor this, but if this is your first time here, I need to make one important observation about that. This phrase also occurs in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's describing the process of church discipline. How over time, as you plead with someone, but this person hardens in sin and remains in the church claiming to be a Christian, a part of the people, but walking in open sin, that at the end you may have to set this person apart, set them out, and so you shall purge the evil from your midst, quoting Deuteronomy. In the new covenant, where we are not a civil entity, we are not a a group that has civil law. It's not a responsibility. We don't obey and and execute civil sentences. But we do read this and say there's something very important there. Sin must be dealt with. It contaminates the people of God. We have to deal with it. How? Paul tells us, ultimately by the process of church discipline. That's how we purge the evil from our midst. So we read something and say this is serious, and we recognize we do it differently now today said more about that in the past. You can ask me about it if you'd like and make that observation. But in the Old Covenant, 
There is a civil law code at work, and that penalty is death. And when a man commits a crime punishable by death, verses 22 and following, such as a disobedient evil son, such as someone who breaks the covenant in some other way, and it's punishable by death, he is under the curse of God and hung on a tree to display that. It's a serious thing. And so his body is not just killed, it is hung up to display the seriousness of breaking covenant with God. But it's such an evil in and of itself, death is, that it can't be left there very long. It can't even be hung up overnight or it would contaminate the land. This land is meant to be a place of life. And so if you cause threat to or take life, you forfeit your own. But that forfeiting of your life itself is a contamination land and must be cut off quickly. It's meant to be a place where life and blessing happens. That's the text. Obviously, there's a lot of details there, and I've only brushed over the surface of some of them. But the chapter has to all be explained together because these sections won't make sense if you don't see the, the larger umbrella of life and land that's cast over them. Those two themes, life and land, they kind of put together, they're going to form the, the summary this morning. here. So let me try to express this in a sentence and then make a couple of observations about it. Here's a, a summary sentence for chapter 21. By the work of Christ, God makes his people a people of life. By the work of Christ, God makes his people a people of life. That's the summary sentence I'm going to unpack here now in a a couple of observations. I'm going to begin with God and what he's doing, what his intention is, what his agenda is, if you will. Here's my first observation. God means, in other words, he's, he's after, God means for his people to have life. Life in the full. He means for his people to have abundant, full, complete life. That's why he gave them the land in the first place. That's why he is bringing them into this place. That's why he's giving these laws so as to protect it. Make sure it remains clean. This all includes a physical dimension. This is, after all, the land of milk and honey. It's a prosperous place. The plan is that they would go there and that they would find physical rest and physical prosperity, physical security, while God physically dwells in their midst. He would enjoy life. And so he's giving all these laws to reinforce that, to to eliminate things like murder and and to eliminate things like the abuse of vulnerable people. That's why he's he's giving these laws. There's There's a very physical component to them, but there's much more than a physical component. Because we are much more than physical beasts. We have souls. We are people with bodies and also souls. And so full life is supremely the life of a full soul. 
I say that and I know that, that on one level everybody says, uh-huh, sure. I don't think you actually believe that. Because I, I don't think that I believe that. I spend a whole lot of time and energy running after things that will satisfy my physical life because that's where I really believe I really live. I don't. You don't. Full life is the life of the soul. If you don't have life in the soul, you can't actually even enjoy all the physical life that that you may acquire. Plenty of people have everything and misery along with it. If God means to give us life, He must give us life in the soul. And therefore, the greatest blessing, the greatest provision in this land is God's very presence Himself. Because that's what gives life in the soul. Remember the Numbers passage. I dwell in this place. I dwell in the midst of my people. He was showing something when they journeyed through the wilderness and he put his tent right in the middle. And when they come into the land, he's going to live in a city, in a building, in a room, in their midst. Providing himself for his people. Inviting them to come to him. And the psalmists sing of this all of the time. They talk about it like, in your presence is fullness of joy. They talk about it. I have more joy from God than they have when their grain and new wine abounds. In other words, take your plentiful crops, I'll take God. God, who is my exceeding joy, says another soul. When He is giving them a place, what He is giving them is Himself in it. And these laws are striving to keep that place clean and pure, not polluted and defiled, to keep it as a place where a holy God such as Himself can abide, not be chased away from. He's doing that because He means for His people to have life in His presence, face to face with the One for whom their souls were made. Why? We have to ask that question, why? Because I can say what I was just saying, and some thought may, and I think frequently does, occur that without even noticing it, we get turned towards ourselves, and we begin to think of God as a really nice helper. You hear somebody say, God means for His people to have life, and you think, I, I want that. I want peace. I want joy. I want contentment. I want hope. I want blessing. All those things that make up real life in the soul. I want that. God's going to give it to me. Great. I'm after God then. And God becomes the servant to me. Now those things are real and those things are really good for people. But that's not the end goal. God did not come into existence to help you. The way around. Not that we help Him. We came into existence after Him. We serve a purpose that's all about Him. So think about this. What's God after? Why would God want to give a people life? 
What is He giving them when He gives them a place? Let me step back. We're walking through the Old Testament and we, we look at Abraham in this journey. I mean, you read books and books of the Old Testament. He's on this journey. Wandering through, through the wilderness. Homeless. God gives him a promise. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to give you a people. And we, he looks forward and it is apparent that he's looking forward to Canaan. But he's not. It's apparent that God promised him a place that you can look on a map and you can draw a line around it. Here's the Mediterranean, or for your perspective, here's the Mediterranean, you draw a line around it. That's the place that God promised to give him. It isn't. That's way too small. Read Romans 4, verse 13. Paul in Romans 4 is talking about, he's clarifying for us, who the children of Abraham are. They are not ethnically defined. They are those who believe. Be they Gentile or Jew, those who believe are the children of Abraham. And what did Abraham receive as a promise? What was Abraham promised, he and his heirs? The world. Not the little land. The world. The Greek words, cosmos. Everything. All of the creation. Not just a little piece. The whole of the creation will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not just a little place. Everything will be filled with worshipers. The people of God. The place is vast. Other places in the Bible call it the new heaven, the new earth. It's big. The people of God will fill all of it. And what will we fill it as? Who will we be when we're there? We will be people of life. People who have a life living in us that... Different than right now, because we only have it in a little bit right now, different than right now will perfectly reflect the one in whose image we are made. This, I realize this could be a little complicated, but stretch your mind a little bit here. We are a part of a much bigger thing than just making you happy on Sunday afternoon. It's huge. We are a part of God's displaying of who He is. He is life. Why did He make people? Why did He give them life? So that He can display in His image bearers His life. Vast and full and abundant. Where? Everywhere in His creation. In all of the world. That is a key way that His glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, as the Bible says several times. Why is God out to give His people life? Life in the full? Not just to make you happy, although it will make you very happy. 
but because God is about reclaiming all of His creation for Himself and displaying in all of His creation all of who He is. And how He's going to do that is change you and send you out into it. He's going to put life in you. Himself in you. To display His glory forever, everywhere. If you understood that, it should cause your mind to lift up far above the mundane. Far above the little stuff. You're about something huge. There is a whole lot more going on in your little life than just your little life. Our little lives are part of a huge plan. And his first step is to give us life in that. And we hear that, and if you get it, you say, I want that, I'm on board with that. And then bizarrely, while you reach out with one hand to grab a hold of that, with your other hand you reach out to find life everywhere else except in that. That's the bizarre, illogical reality of our human lives. I can talk about what I was just talking about. I can hear it. I can understand it. I can say yes. And I can go out and try to squeeze life out of some other person or some other thing in this world. Moments apart. It is phenomenal. Wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? Because I need to be rescued. I do that all of the time. So do you. Maybe even while you're sitting here right at this very moment. Your mind's flitting back and forth between what I'm talking about and what you're worried about or what you wish would be the case or you're frustrated by this or that or the other. Almost at the same time. And in one way, this, this could be kind of sad and frustrating. In another word, in, in another way, it's terrifying. I don't think that any of us have ever thought about marrying a captive woman. Somebody that we captured in warfare. Probably has never happened to any of us. And I don't imagine that most of us, perhaps some, but I don't imagine most of us have ever discovered a dead body or thought about how we would go about breaking a heifer's neck in which little stream valley. That, we don't live there. But, while listening to this offer of life from God, what we do do is reach out and maybe not marry a captive woman, but we do reach out and think about or carry out plans to use people for our own selfish motives. To exploit those that we have power over. To advance my agenda, to fulfill my whims. And she exists, does she not? To fulfill my whims, isn't that the situation here? If I want a wife, she's a wife. If I want a, a financial commodity, that's what she is.
We've never come across, across a dead body, never thought about just walking away and letting it lie there. But we have overlooked murder. Committed it, even, as Jesus defines it. Many of us are full of anger. Smiling. Full of anger. Slander and scorn are your language. Not all of us. Not all the time. But it's there. We do it. We tolerate it. And then out of the other side of our mouths, after we finish cursing, we bless and sing praises to God for all the blessing that He's provided for us. Never realizing the guilt that rests upon us and the pollution of this place, the pollution of this place that threatens to drive Him away. Oh, I want that life and I want this one too. And as I grab for this one, I'm in danger every moment of losing that one. Not that he ever leaves a true believer. I'm not saying that, but it is clearly possible to grieve the Holy Spirit. Ancient Israel so polluted themselves that God no longer dwelt in their midst. The glory of the Lord departed from the temple and he cast them out. It is possible that we as individuals or we as a people can grieve Him and drive Him away because of this thing that is simultaneously frustrating and odd but dangerous. Deuteronomy 27 verse 26 says, Cursed is anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. All of them. This reaching after the life that God offers, this reaching after life everywhere else, is frustrating and odd, and it leaves me under the curse of God. 22, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, who's that? Us. All of us. Cursed is every man who does not continue to do everything written in this law. Not breaking the necks of heifers. Honoring God. Giving life to people rather than taking it from them. The curse of God rests on all of us. We are the man of verse 22, worthy of death, under the curse of God. And He means for His people to have life and we walk away from it. And the stunning thing is that that is not the end of this sermon. stunning thing is that that is not the end. If, if you're a Christian, if you've been around the Bible at all, if you're listening to any of the songs, you know where this is going, but you've got to grab this. the stunning thing 
is that that is not the end. It should be. It should be. But in the mercy of God, it isn't. It's amazing. The second observation. We have to eagerly embrace Christ, the Lord's provision for life. That's the stunning thing. Eagerly, with delight and joy and expediency, grab hold of Christ, who is God's provision for life. As it always does, the law confronts us in our sin holds up God's gracious offer of life, shines a flashlight on us who walk away from it, and then points us beyond ourselves to the one who is the end of the law, the one towards whom the law is moving and pointing, Jesus. Christ redeemed us, bought us out. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the testimony of Galatians 3. We stand as lawbreakers. The moral law of God is clear, and so is my breaking of it, and so is your breaking of it, and every person you've ever met, so is our breaking of it. And we are under the curse, and God so strongly desires to give life to His people that He Himself came to break that curse. He made His obedient Son accursed for us. His Son who had not done anything to warrant any anger or any wrath from God, His Father. Nonetheless, He became sin for us on our behalf. He bore our sin, our curse, on the cross and is hung up on a tree for all to see as a display. So we can point at it and say, there is the curse of God. It doesn't rest on me anymore, on those who believe. Most of us, I I know, most of you know this. See it as a stunning thing, but I, I don't think that every one of us knows this. I don't know everybody here, but I expect that some of you have not yet connected these dots. And you have to hear very clearly that you abide, you live under the curse of God. And you can't do anything to get out from underneath of it. You can't shape up. If you never sinned again, you sinned a minute ago, yesterday... And for that, you are under the curse of God. It remains on you. And there is only one way for you to be bought out from underneath of that curse. It's if if the curse rests on someone else. Someone else in particular. Jesus, God the Son. There's a way out. Out from under the curse. And there's a way in into the life that God gives to His people. And that way, that life, is named Jesus. Trust Him. 
Cast all your hope on Him. Don't hope in Him plus something else. Him plus a reformed life. No, there isn't any hope in that. Him only. Trust Him only. And the curse that would fall on you will fall on Him. And the life that is His will become yours. You can trust Him and be saved and receive, as the Galatians passage continues, the blessing of life that was promised to Abraham that comes to all who believe in Christ. Eagerly embrace Him. But we also need... So Jesus is obviously the provision for life in this sense, that He removes the curse of God from us and gives to us eternal life. He's that provision in that sense. But we need to think about it a little bit more broadly. Because we cannot divide the grace of God in Christ that saves from the grace of God in Christ that sanctifies. They are fit right together in the Bible. If you need a passage, you could jot down Titus 2.12. Paul's describing the grace that brings salvation, how it has appeared, comma, same sentence, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and to live upright and godly lives while we wait for Him to come back. That's, that's here now, not eternal life there, that's life now. Grace of God comes in Christ to give us life now. How does that happen? It plants the Holy Spirit in us to move us to follow His decrees hope of the new covenant. What are his decrees? What, what does he want me to be? Deuteronomy 21 flushes that out a little bit, doesn't it? He wants us to be a people of life. Not just who have life, but who give it away rather than taking it. A people who uphold the sixth commandment. Who aren't just worried about, I don't want to sin but we're thinking about the commandment in the opposite sense too, of how can I give life? How can I encourage and nurture? You see how the law of God and the grace of God work together. The law of God shows me what I am supposed to be, shows me that I'm not, points me to Christ, who then empowers me to look back at His decrees and moves me to follow them so that I become more of what He is. His character revealed in the moral law is still what He wants me to be. The law doesn't go away. It doesn't vanish. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness for the person who has the Spirit living in them. So I go to that and I say, well, I'm not about to marry a captive from war. But where do I find myself coming over here trying to draw life out of people? Ah, okay. There I see some of my selfish motives and my pursuit of my own pleasure to others' expense as if they are my commodities for my whims. I repent of that and say, God, how can I be a blesser of this vulnerable one rather than a taker from that one? I become like God is towards her or him. A blesser rather than a taker, giving life, rather than extracting it. 
We're not about to stone any disobedient sons, but we are equally called to address sin among the community. Sin that threatens the holiness of His people. So show me then, God, where I turn a blind eye to sin in myself or amongst others. Maybe not confronting it as I should. Maybe not even bothering to investigate to find out if it is sin. I just don't want to get involved. That's your life. I see you yelling at your kids in the hallway. I'm going to walk the other way because that's messy. Where am I avoiding it and overlooking it? Rather than for your glory, for their good, engaging and asking a question. Maybe not at that moment, but later. Hey, what's going on with you and your kids? The law helps us to see what we're supposed to be after. And filled with God's Spirit, He moves us towards it. But there's a third way that I need to touch on. That Christ is our provision for life. Because it is not just that He gives us the Spirit and therefore gives us more self-control. Think of this dynamic here again. When when I'm kind of grabbing onto this life, but I'm also reaching for life somewhere else, the second way that Christ is our provision for life is is that He helps me to to stop that, to repent of it, to, to behave differently. But the third way kind of stands behind that. He actually changes me on the inside so that it's not just willpower or discipline or repentance. It's at a desire level, I am different. The question involved in sin, just in general, the the question involved in sin in general is where do you believe you will find life? Think about it. Pornography on the Internet. You go to that if and when you think that will satisfy me in some way for some period of time. And if you're not remotely inclined to believe that, you don't go there. There are tons of people in this room who have never even thought about doing that. Some who have. And some who are doing it right now. Maybe in your mind, you're walking back through what you saw last time. Because in some way, you're inclined to believe... That was satisfying in some way. That helped me. I mean, not in the long term, but it, but it did something in here that lifted me a little bit, that maybe chased away the pain, gave me a little buzz of excitement. But Christ is God's provision for life in that He moves into you and changes you such that you don't even think that anymore. The the temptation leaves because you are not believing it. You see it as a lie. And the attraction of sin, the lie that sin is throwing out there to you, pales. You see right through it. Think of something in your life. See how this dynamic works. I have never been remotely tempted to try cocaine. Some have. I have not been. Because I've never remotely believed that was a good idea. But some did. Hopefully you don't anymore. 
if that was you. But I could turn it around, couldn't I? And there are things that I still regularly reach out for and try to grab life from because a part of me thinks there's life there to be had. There isn't. And God, the Spirit at work inside of me, convinces He is life. In His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. They are not found over there, Steve. And He gives me full life as bit by bit by bit He persuades me of that. We can put a word on it and call it sanctification, but we don't have to. We can just say, God, move in and change me at the heart level, not just at the willpower behavior level. At the heart level, change me. Give me life, full life inside, such that I see you for who you are. I see this for what it is. I'm drawn. I'm one by you, for you. By the work of Christ, God makes His people a people of life. People who have life ourselves, people who give life away to others. And so are accurate reflections of the God who is life, to His glory and for our good forever, everywhere, in all of the land, for all of the ages upon ages upon ages that we will dwell there in His presence. Amen. Let me pray. Oh God, would you open our eyes to you and give us life. We bless your name that you sent your Son to bear the curse for us on the cross to remove from us the penalty of sin that we might close with You and find life in You. Do that, please. Complete the work You have begun. For my brothers and sisters here, complete the work that You've begun in their life. Sanctify them. Grow them. For those here who don't know You, Lord, save them. Open their eyes to see Christ as a great hope and You as a great lover. Working in to save them, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.